0: Good afternoon. Good to see you guys. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. Hopefully uh, the sound check is okay. We were a little rushed this morning, um, but don't worry. I was only a little stressed. Uh, we're continuing our series, East of Eden, preaching verse by verse through the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn there, Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 5 and 6 today. So we're, we're going to finish chapter 5, and we're going to get into chapter 6, and we're going to take it all the way to the middle of the book, okay? So Ecclesiastes, got 12 chapters, we're going to get to the end of chapter 6, Ecclesiastes 5 and 6, and while you turn there, any uh, any game show fans out there? Okay, zero, that's cool. Um, let's just close in prayer, and uh, no, uh, I know a few people out there are just too embarrassed to say that they're into game shows, but I was on Facebook, as uh, us old people do sometimes. And uh, I saw two of my friends were actually on Jeopardy! recently. They're on the Tournament of Champions. So apparently they had won before and they were invited back. So I guess I'm like somewhat famous, two degrees away. Pretty cool. Uh, There's just something about game shows, though, that certain people like. And for you, maybe if you do like it, maybe you just like the idea of competition. Maybe you like trivia, whatever it might be. For Michael Larson, and I'll talk about him in a moment, it was very simple. It wasn't about the game. It wasn't about the competition. For him, it was simply about the money, the money. Now, you probably never heard that name before, Michael Larson, but for decades, he was the record holder for being the person who had won the most amount of money on a single episode of any game show. Okay, so he was on this game show, game show called Press Your Luck, and he won $110,237 on this one episode. And this was back in the 80s. Okay, so adjusted for inflation, it's like $8 billion today. Nah, no, I'm just kidding. It was three about 300000 Okay, so it's a lot of money, a lot of money all Michael's life, he was trying to get rich, okay? So if you want to know the backstory. And and what intrigued him the most were these game shows. He was sure that if he watched them enough, if he studied enough, that he would be able to kind of figure out what's going on in these shows. And actually what his wife said is he bought 12 TVs back in the day, or CRT TVs, and he put them up side by side in his living room, and he turned them all on at the same time, and he would watch every single show. He would watch infomercials, all these different things, trying to make money. She said it was so hot with all these TVs that the paint was peeling off the wall. And he would record on his VCR these game shows, and he would play them back like a coach watches tape of, like, football or something like that. He would pause and rewind. And one of the shows that really caught his attention was this show, I never heard of it, called Press Your Luck. In this show, there was kind of this random thing that would happen, and you could kind of stop this light from shining. And if it landed on something, uh, on a prize, then you would win that prize. And everyone thought it was random, but he watched it so much, he broke it down so much with his remote control that he realized there was a pattern. And he applied, and wouldn't you know it, he got on the show... And he's there, and he's a little bit nervous, and everyone thinks he's nervous because he's on TV, but he's actually nervous because he wants to see if his plan's going to work. And he starts going, and he keeps winning, $4,000, $8,000, $12,000. And the audience and the host are going nuts because it's so exciting. The producers backstage are going nuts because they're losing all their money. They realize that this guy has figured out the game. He's gamed the game show. And at the end of it all, when he was done, he won $110,000 or $110, $237. Now, let me ask you a question. What would you do if you suddenly had an extra $100,000? Like we invited you up, and we had a little Zoe game show, and then at the end of it, you won that, and you could just take it home in cash. What would you do with it? You know, it was first said in the Broadway musical Cabaret, money makes the world go round. Have you heard that before? Money makes the world go round. money. Now, personally, this is one of the last things I want to talk about from up here. I don't like talking about money personally at all. But we're in Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes has been about how to live wisely in life. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes knows you can't talk about life without talking about money. And the things that money can do. And the things that money can do to us again what would you do with that money i'm sure you can think of something right something that you have on your wish list that you want to buy maybe you have some debt that you want to pay off Maybe there are some people that you need to buy Christmas presents for, but you don't have money in the budget. Maybe you want a cushion to be able to switch jobs or career fields. Maybe you're the kind of person where money is the first thing on your mind when you wake up in the morning and the last thing when your head hits the pillow at night. You're constantly checking how your investments are doing. You're checking how much money you made. You're always looking at maybe you could switch careers or switch jobs or get a promotion. You're always thinking about having more. If you're an adult and youth here, okay, maybe you don't think about it this way, but if you're an adult, you know that we think about money all the time. We have to think about it. It's connected to almost everything we want and everything we need. We work for it. Food costs money. Homes cost money. Electricity costs money. Gas costs money. I remember the first time I ate out when I was 18 years old. I left the house, and my dad didn't pay. Thanks, Dan. But I paid, and I didn't realize how expensive it was to pay for food. I almost didn't want to eat anymore. Oscar Wilde once said, when I was young, I thought that money was the most important thing in life. Now that I am old, I know that it is. Now, I'm not saying that money is the most important thing in life. Okay, that's not what I'm preaching today. I'm not saying, I'm not going to take a special offering afterwards. I'm not doing any of that. But I think that there is this tension for us as people, especially in church where we feel that it's wrong, right? We feel it's wrong to talk about money. We shouldn't be talking about money all the time. We shouldn't be preaching money about money all the time. If the pastor's always talking about money, there's something wrong. We shouldn't be talking about worldly things. And yet at the same time, the reality is money kind of does make our worlds go round. Afterwards, we're going to do something that's going to cost money. Tomorrow, a bill's going to come in that costs money. We go to our work, and the reason we work is because we need some money to live. Jesus understood this. He knew how tightly money intertwines with every branch of our lives. It's why he said, you cannot serve God in money. Jesus knew that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. So what are we supposed to do with money? We can't dance around it. Okay. We can't avoid it, especially in this text. So what are we supposed to do? Well, this leads to Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through six 12. We're going to finish all of chapter six. Like I said, and the theme of this of this section of this passage is as the ESV titles it, the vanity of wealth, the vanity of wealth. Now it's a long text today. So we're going to read it as we go along. Okay. So let me pray for us and let's get into it. Okay. So let's pray. Let's pray that God would help us. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. God, I pray that it wouldn't be my words, but your word that we would understand some difficult texts, some difficult verses God, but even more than understanding, God, I pray that we would receive them with soft hearts. God, I pray that you would give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see what you have for us. Help us to see the world and our possessions and the money that we have, even the money that we need differently. God, and I pray that at the end of it, you would lead us to yourself. God, we need you more than we need money, and I pray that you would... Impress that truth upon our hearts this afternoon. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes is a book of questions. We've said this. Ecclesiastes is a book of questions. In fact, it would be more accurate to say it's a book that questions questions. It's not a book that, that's content to float kind of on the surface of things. It's not politically correct. It doesn't sound like what most books of the Bible sound like or what you hear in church very often. It's why Ecclesiastes is sometimes called the most dangerous book of the Bible. It's a book that causes you and causes us to question. And it's not afraid of confrontation. The preacher isn't scared To to call it like he sees it. He's not opposed to sharing how he really feels when he looks at at how messed up the world is. It's also why other people call Ecclesiastes the most depressing book in the Bible. They say all it talks about is the vanity of life and the vanity of the things we live for, how everything is meaningless, how we toil under the sun, how every day is just the same thing, how everything we care about is just chasing after the wind. And even if we manage to catch it, when we open our hands, it's still empty, and then we die, and then who cares? Ecclesiastes seems to delight in taking us to the very brink of despair. Apparently, I do too, as Pastor Kenny was saying last week. Thanks, Kenny. And yet what we've seen is that Ecclesiastes, despite this, is a book that that does take us there, but it doesn't want to leave us there. It's taking us there for a reason, but it doesn't want to leave us there. It forces us to look at the howling wind and the roaring waves all around us, but then it reminds us that the Creator is on board our boat. And this is still his creation, even east of Eden. So it's a dangerous book. It's a depressing book. That's kind of the press on Ecclesiastes. But what if I told you that Ecclesiastes is actually and has actually been called a book of joy? Now, we're going to reach the halfway point of the book today. The second half will move quicker than the first. And we're in a section now where the preacher has turned his attention from his argument that everything's vanity, kind of the things that he wants to get across, to his observations. He's not just saying, okay, this is vanity, this is vanity. What he's showing or what he's doing is he's showing us how he's reached these conclusions. Look at time, he says. Understand how we're just caught up in the march and the flow of time. We can't slow it down. We can't press pause. We can't hit rewind. We're stuck. He says, look at the the web of human relationships that exist and intersect all around us. How there are people around us who affect our lives and vice versa. Look even at religion. Look at how we can go to church and yet do it wrong. How there is even vanity that has seeped into the walls of religion and worship. And here in chapter 5, verse 8, we step out of the doors of the church. That's where we were last week. Into the real world. And the preacher says, look now at what makes the world go round. we got to talk about money and possessions. Now we're going to break down our text into three points, but not in the same way we usually do. Usually we just go linearly through the text, beginning, middle, and end, something like that. Today, we're not going to do that because the text is kind of situated or constructed a little differently. So scholars like to point out that this section, 5 through 612, is what is known as a chiasm, okay? Or it has a chiastic structure. And you don't need to memorize that, but it's a Hebrew poetic structure. And what it means is that it's kind of like a sandwich, okay? So the outside is kind of parallel, and then it moves inside in layers. Okay, so there are layers to this. So we're not going beginning, middle, end. We're going outside to inside. Okay, that's how we're going to go. It might be a little confusing, but hopefully as we get into it, you'll see how we're moving and what direction we're moving. Outside to inside. Um, there are three main layers to this poem. So the beginning and the end, that's one layer. Okay, then you move in a little bit. So a little bit in from the beginning, a little bit in from the end. That's the second layer. And then in the center which in Hebrew poetry is usually the highlighted part. And the center is the takeaway that the preacher wants us to put in our pocket to take home. Okay, so three layers, three points. We're going to see first one problem. Second, two evils under the sun. And then three, three things money can't buy. Try to make it easy for you. Okay, so one problem, two evils, three things money can't buy. First, one problem, one problem. The problem with money. And it's not what you think, maybe. The problem with money. We're going to look at chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, and chapter 6, verses 7 through 12. Okay, so it's outside to inside. So let's start at the beginning, chapter 5, verse 8. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over him. The preacher begins by firmly situating us in the real world. Okay, It's not about theory. It's not about what should happen. It's not about idealism. He says, if you go outside and you see this, don't be amazed. Now, for the first time in this book, it's kind of interesting. Okay, He's been saying, I've seen this. I've seen that. I've seen evil under the sun. I've seen vanity under the sun. For the first time, he switches to us. He says, if you see. He invites us to look around. In fact, he reminds us of what we're bound to see. If you go outside and you see evil happening, don't be amazed. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. If you see uh, some poor person being oppressed, if you see the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be shocked. If you see things that make you question your faith or even the existence of God, you might have heard people say this before, right? I used to believe in God when I was young, but then I grew up and I saw all the suffering in the world. The preacher of Ecclesiastes goes in a totally different direction. He says, if you see this, Don't be surprised at all. This is how the world is. People are corrupt to the core. And this doesn't mean that people are pure evil. Okay, we've talked about this, but I think it's helpful to say it again and again. Corruption has seeped into every chamber of our hearts, but that doesn't mean that we're pure evil or as bad as we possibly could be. So when theologians talk about this, they call it total depravity. It doesn't mean utter depravity or or, or complete depravity. Okay, total depravity just means that the totality of our beings has been affected by sin. There's not one molecule of our bodies that hasn't been touched by sin. And yet it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. It just means that sin has thoroughly permeated all of us. So when he says, if you go outside and you see some bad things happening, when you see people act selfishly, when you see people who know better still do wrong, that's just par for the course. That's just how people are. And then he says, for the high official is watched by a higher. Okay, this might not be very immediately clear what it means. Um, but what he's talking about here is it's rarely an isolated problem. And sometimes you see corruption and you think your, your first instinct, maybe you're the kind of person who says, i got to go talk to the manager. i got to go talk to the boss. i got to tell the supervisor, do you know what's going on under here? He says, look, All right, if there is someone, a low-level worker who is corrupt, he's watched by his boss. And if his boss wanted to stop it, he would. So what he's getting at is the idea that corruption goes up the chain. doesn't matter how far you go up. There's still sin. There's still evil. And this helps us to understand verse 9. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Okay, right now we're like, what does this have to do with money? What are we even talking about? Okay, well, the distance, okay, let's look at verse 9. The distance between English and Hebrew in this verse is wider than normal. Okay, Hebrew is pretty different than English already. Uh, so it's a little difficult to translate from Hebrew into English. But here it's even more difficult. If you try to translate the Hebrew literally word for word, it says something like profit from land in all is this a king in respect of a cultivated field. So there you go. You know what it means now. In context, it's more clear, okay? The king is the one at the top of the corruption for good and for bad. He profits off everyone's labor, even though he personally doesn't spend a second working the fields. He's the one who does it for his own gain. And yet, at the same time, everyone gains too. So as the great Old Testament commentator, Derek Kidner puts it, Tyranny is still better than anarchy. Okay, so tyranny is bad. You go outside, you see how there are corrupt people who have power over other people, power over you. You might have a terrible boss. And yet he says, but there's still some good that comes out of it. What is he getting at? Well, think about it. Tyranny, the oppression of the poor, corruption in the government, all problems. And the world has its proposed solutions for these problems. For example, the communist might say, overthrow the system, burn it down, take from the rich and give to me, probably. The capitalist might say, just play the game and win, which is a little cynical. But as the preacher does, he sidesteps worldly solutions. Okay, in fact, he's not even thinking about a solution per se. He wants to get to the deeper root of the issue. These are all problems, but what drives them? What causes them? Why would someone want to oppress poor people? And we might say sin in general. Okay, but why this sin? And why would a king be committed to cultivated fields? What gain is there that a king would put effort towards this? Well, this whole section is about money. If you read the whole thing, you realize that the one through line through it all is money. So why does he start it this way? Well, I think it's because when we think about money and problems... I think for a lot of us, we just want the simple black and white answer. Tell me what it is. Is money good or is money bad? Should I think about money all the time or should I stop thinking about it? Should I try to get as much money as I can and call a blessing from God? Or should I give it all away or or not earn any of it and say that it's evil and try to distance myself from it? Is money good or is money bad? But the preacher wants us to see that it doesn't work that way in this world east of Eden. It doesn't work that way. The thing thing is all these problems that he's bringing up are just symptoms of another problem, a problem that's in our hearts. Money can be good. Money can be bad, but the real issue, what makes it good or bad has to do with us. It's dissatisfaction. Because if you look at verse 10, this is where he goes to the heart. He looks at a problem outside and then he looks to himself and says, how does this manifest in me? What can I learn? Verse 10, he who loves money, will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. There's a problem and it's not necessarily outside of us. It's within us. uh, J.D. Rockefeller, John Rockefeller, the first billionaire ever in America. At one time, the richest man in the entire world was once asked how much money is enough. When are you going to stop? How much money is enough? And you know what he said? He said, just a little bit more. Just a little more. If you love money, there will never be enough. If you love wealth, you'll never make enough. This is vanity. This is Hevel. It's fruitless. If money is what has your heart, there's no number that will satisfy. It's about attitude, not amount. See, the thing is when more is your goal, there's no way to ever reach it. Okay. It's a moving target. When more is your goal, you will never, ever be satisfied. And the truth is sometimes more is worse. If you look at verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? What he's talking about is how when you get rich, your responsibility grows. So let's say you're a businessman, right? You're getting richer. Your company blows up. You have more workers now. You have more customers, whatever it might be. You got more problems. Maybe he's talking about the, the people who kind of hang on to you when you become rich. A lot of professional athletes experience this firsthand. They, they maybe grew up poor and then all of a sudden they're millionaires and all of these cousins come out of the woodwork who want a handout, who want you to pay for them. What's a couple thousand dollars to you? They bankrupt them. As someone once said, more money, more problems. And then the preacher asks, what advantage is it to see them Uh, What is it but to see them with his eyes? And what he's saying is, okay, you have all this stuff, but think about it. Does it really make you feel better? You can see that you have another car in the garage, that you have more square footage in your house, that there's more numbers in your bank account. And yet, does it really make you a different person? I don't think so. The more you have, rather, the more bloated your life becomes. Look at verse 12, even literally. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The irony is that overeating makes sleeping difficult because of indigestion. Okay, I don't know if you ever try to eat where you are completely or sleep when you're completely stuffed. The other irony is that not working at all during the day makes sleeping difficult because you're not tired at the end of it. The laborer who toils all day for a piece of bread can sleep better, can actually get rest and remember that for later the preacher will return to this idea of rest can actually get rest over the rich person who is too full to even sleep. Now, that's the beginning of the sandwich. Flip it over, the other piece of bread, to the end, Okay, which parallels the beginning. Because if you look at chapter 6, look at chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. It's the same idea. All the toil of man is for his mouth, Yet his appetite is not satisfied. There's that word again, satisfied. It's talking about eating. There's a hunger inside of us for more and it can never be satisfied. You know, I remember years ago, I went to this restaurant. Um, it's called Marie Calendar's. It's in California. I don't know if you know about it. Um, it's not here. It's kind of like Cheddar's in some ways. It's famous for its pies, but they got food and stuff. Um, but I went with some guys, some of my friends, and then um, I don't know why I wanted to do this, but... I decided to order the Thanksgiving dinner. It was like March or something, but they had turkey on the menu with stuffing and mashed potatoes and cranberry. And I'm really big on cranberry and that's like the only time I can eat it. So I ordered it and I was really hungry too. So I'm like, I'm going full Thanksgiving here, even though it's just some random Tuesday or whatever. And I told the waiter, I said, Hey, is there any way I can get double mashed potatoes? Because I'm so hungry. Right. And he said, for sure. Right. Maybe you can substitute. So I was like, okay, I'll take out the dessert and I'll get double mashed potatoes. because so I really want mashed potatoes, right? So then he brings it. So one, I'm waiting forever and I'm like so hungry. I'm like I'm like a Israelite in the wilderness, right? I'm like complaining to Moses, I'm so hungry. And then they bring the plate and there's just this one like ice cream scoop worth of mashed potatoes on there, right? For sure. I know what an ice cream scoop looks like, right? I know what one scoop looks like. So I said, hey, I think I ordered um, double mashed potatoes. And they said, yeah, that is double mashed potatoes. So I don't know how small single mashed potatoes is, um, but I ate that meal. And let me just say, I was still hungry afterwards. It cost like 15 bucks too. Go figure. We work hard to earn more to be satisfied. We order double mashed potatoes because we're so hungry. We think that we just need a little bit more food and then I'll be satisfied in the end. We might double our income, but it all seems strangely small to us. Like those mashed potatoes did to me. When we get it, because again, if the goal is more, the goal is more, there's no way you can ever hit that because once you get more then what's the goal, it's more, it's more. See, before we talk about money, the preacher knows that we might get the wrong idea. You might think, okay, it's about the bottom line. Okay, tell me, uh, how much money should I make before I become one of these rich people in the Bible? Who, 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 it's it's too hard to to become saved or whatever. You know, you know what I'm talking about. We want to know, okay, what what is the cutoff? Okay, how much money do I do I need to, or how much money should I want if I don't want to be greedy or something like that? But what the preacher wants us to do is to look at our hearts first and to understand who we are. See, before we talk about money in more detail and what it means wisely uh, to live wisely when it comes to it, we need to talk about expectations. Because for some of us, we're fooling ourselves. For some of us, we feel like, okay, what's the harm? I just want a little bit more. I don't want to be rich, okay? I'm not trying to be a millionaire or a billionaire. I just want a little bit more. And we follow that trail of breadcrumbs our entire lives. I'll work a little bit more overtime, and then I'll have enough to go on an even nicer vacation with my kids. And you keep doing that until your kids are grown up and gone and you didn't take the vacation. If I could just buy a new car, I won't ever want anything new again. Have we ever said something like that before? If I could get more money in the bank, I wouldn't ever worry about finances. If this is how we think, the preacher wants us to understand that it'll never be enough. You'll never have enough to not worry. You'll never have enough where you won't want anything else in the end. Because your focus is always on more and a hunger for more by definition can never be satisfied. You know, I know very few people who consider themselves to be greedy. You know, people will share their sins in church. You know, I've been struggling with laziness a little bit. You know, I'm having trouble in my relationship with my friend or whatever it might be. I'm struggling with lust, even, they might say, or I'm struggling with pride. But very few people say, you know what? I'm just a greedy person. All I care about is money. There's just such a stigma to that. I don't want to be the richest man in the world. Okay, I don't even want to be rich. I just want to have a little more. But what is greed except a finely sharpened dissatisfaction? You got to dwell on this. Before we talk about what to do with money, Before we talk about uh, how to approach money, we need to think about us, our own hearts. Satisfaction is something that needs to be settled internally. Look at verses eight and nine in chapter six. For what advantage has the wise over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. now, this is not necessarily the easiest passage to understand. But what verse 8 is talking about is the idea of having. Okay, what advantage do the wise have if their appetite is not satisfied? What does the poor have who knows how to be wise if his appetite is not satisfied? What's the point of figuring out life? What's the point of being someone who knows how to game the system? What's the point of being someone who knows how to rise up the corporate ladder if at the end of it it's not going to make you happy? And verse 9 says, basically, a bird in hand is worth two in the bush. Satisfaction with what you have is always better than a stomach that growls for just a little bit more. Now, look with me at the very end of this section. Look at verses 10 and 11. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Okay, so... Verse 10 begins by talking about how the future, it doesn't seem connected at first, but the future is already written and that humanity is limited. Pastor Eric talked about this a couple chapters ago. We're not God. We can talk all we want. We can ask him to change the whole uh the whole way the world is set up. We can try to dispute with him, saying it shouldn't be like this, shouldn't be like that. But the fact of the matter is the world is how it is. We can complain about it, we can rage against heaven but it doesn't do any good. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And this leads into chapter seven. We're not going to get there yet because sandwich, but these aren't rhetorical questions. Okay, they're not rhetorical questions. They are questions that point us to the only one who can help us, but hold that thought too. Okay, let me wrap this point. What do you think will help you? Okay, what do you think will help you? This is another way of looking at the same question, the same problem. What do you think will help you in life? Sounds very general, right? What will help you? What will help you sleep better at night? Another $1,000 maybe? How about $10,000? How about $100,000? How about a million or 2 million or 12 million or 50 million? What will make your life better? What will bring you more happiness? What do you think will help you? If the CEO of your company didn't make so much and shared more with you, one of his hard workers, would that make you happy? what do you think would fix your life if the system was different and we didn't have money at all and we just lived in a commune and we just shared and, and made jam together? The preacher is saying, look, there's no point in even thinking this way. Open your eyes and look, this is how the world is. You got to work. Some people are going to be richer than you. And even if you get more money, it's not going to make you happy or you need to figure out how you approach that question. The world is how it is. You can't change it. And if you're unhappy with it, if you're suffering because of it, if you wish things were different, the only change that will actually help is changing you. The only change that will actually help is changing you. He begins by talking about tyranny and kings. He ends by talking about God and how God has determined the future already. The future is already written. Everything that will be has been named. So stop trying to change what you can't control and look at the one thing that you can. just we don't often want to. And this leads to the second point. The second point. So the problem, as it usually is when we come to the scripture, is actually us. It's not the bottom line. It's our own satisfaction or lack thereof. It's not our net worth. It's not our job. It's not the money in our bank account. That might be a problem, but the problem is always us. Second, two evils under the sun. Two evils under the sun. The next layer within the sandwich. Have you ever heard someone say, and quote the verse, money is the root of all evil. Hey, Money is the root of all evil. Do you know where that is in the Bible? Like What passage, what chapter, what book? It's not in the Bible. I saw someone quote it literally yesterday. As Christians say in their scriptures, money is the root of all evil. That's not what Christians, well, maybe Christians do say it, but that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible actually says, First Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For the love of money leads to all kinds of evil. It's a heart issue and it is similar, but the meaning is quite different. See, the thing is, money isn't evil. And we've talked about this in the first point, but we're going to explore this more in the second point. The love of money is what can lead to all sorts of evil. The love of money can drive us to do terrible things and to neglect what is good. For where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. But it's not about the money. It's about the heart. So you might expect the preacher to say something here about the evils of money. When we talk about two evils under the sun, I've seen how money is a bad thing, but he doesn't do that. That's not where he goes at all. He does talk about two evils, but they're not what you think, especially the first. Look at chapter 5. Go back to verse 5. Chapter 5, excuse me, verse 13. We'll pick up where we left off. There is a grievous evil, do you see that, that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. The first evil, and the word there is for something that is bad, okay, a great tragedy. The first terrible tragedy that I have seen is someone who saved up a lot and lost everything. Someone who worked hard and saved up their money and lost it all due to things outside of his own control. The preacher doesn't say, who cares, right? This is Ecclesiastes. Money doesn't matter. It's all vanity. He doesn't say that. He doesn't doesn't also say that it's good, right? Money's evil. That's good. He lost it. Now he will learn what's truly important in life. No, he says that this is one of the worst things that he's seen in this world. And this is a tale as old as time. I mean, we've seen it in our own lives. A lot of us have seen 2008. That's when I was graduating college and the housing market crashed and all these people. I mean, it was hard for me to get a job. I mean, you could say it was my fault. I was an English major. It was going to be hard no matter what. Hard for me to get a job. But for those of us who are older, who were approaching retirement, some of us couldn't even retire because we had saved up all that money. And then we lost it all because of the economy. The preacher wouldn't shrug at this. He he wouldn't smile. He would weep. And why? Because you need money for life. Look at what he says in the text. He says, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Why would he add that detail? The preacher recognizes that money is necessary if you want to do something as simple as providing for your kid. Money is necessary in the world. That's how the world works. If you want to buy food, you need money. And money is a good thing when it comes to being able to provide for your loved ones. It's a good thing when it comes to being generous with others. First Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, Paul had to bring that up because some Christians were kind of saying, like, it doesn't matter. Money doesn't matter. We just get what we need from the church or from our brothers and sisters or whatever it might be. But he's like, no, there's a reason for money. There's a good that comes out of money so you can provide for other people. So that you can care for them in a tangible way. It's a good and right thing. With money, Solomon built the temple to worship God. With money, the priests were supported in their work of sacrifice. With money, the poor were given food. Money was and is necessary for any kind of generosity. I might even say any kind of faithful living on the ground. You can pretend to be a faithful person in your head, but your checkbook, or I'll just say most of us don't even use checkbooks, but your bank account balance, it'll show what your life is really about. So it's a great tragedy when it's lost. Money has a use. Money is not a bad thing in of itself. When you save it up and you lose it and you see your son is hungry, that's a terrible thing. And this is the other side of the coin. Money isn't secure. See, part of the tragedy of money is that uh, you need it so much in life, and yet it can't ultimately provide for you everything that you need. You need it, but it can't give you everything. Put it in the bank, invest it into the safest index funds, hoard it in cash under your mattress. Money isn't ultimately secure. In fact, even if you put it all into Fort Knox, right? You you buy gold or whatever and you ask the government if you could put it into Fort Knox... It's still not going to matter because verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. What he's saying is, even though money is a good thing, even though money can help, at the end of the day, money can't provide you security. Money isn't eternal. You can't take it with you. Money causes a lot of stress, vexation, and sickness, and anger. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. So money kind of puts us in a trap, right? We need money. Money's a good thing. Money helps us. And yet, if we become all about money, we are wasting our lives completely because money is not a solid foundation to build your life upon at all. Someone once said, oh, excuse me, money is necessary but it doesn't last. Money is even good, but it's not in of itself enough. It provides, but it doesn't give you ultimate security or eternal reward. We kill ourselves for it. We try to hold on to it as tightly as we can, and yet at the end of the day, it just slips through our fingers. In the summer we preach the parable of the rich fool from Luke twelve. Jesus said, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? We can live our lives thinking that we're so secure with our money. And then we pass away as we all do. Our lives are but a vapor and our things go to somebody else. If unforeseen disaster doesn't take our money for sure death will. So the first evil is that money while good can't bear the weight of all of our hopes and dreams. Now, a second, the second evil, there's two evils under the sun. It begins in verse six. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. The first evil is losing everything. The second evil or the danger of losing everything. The second evil is receiving everything and still being unhappy. It's like money, right? It's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, in a literal sense. You have it or you don't, it's still going to be bad. The second evil is getting everything you ever wanted, everything you set out to accomplish. It's landing the dream job with the pension. It's winning the lottery. It's being promoted all the way to CEO. It's ordering everything off your Amazon wish list, only to find it all, at the end of the day, underwhelming. It's one thing to hear someone say, money can't buy you happiness, It's another thing to experience it. And you wonder why so many of the rich and famous end up taking their own lives. Because they get to the top and it's not that great. You know, I read a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip and kind of in a funny way, it illustrated such a poignant point. It's no Calvin and Hobbes. It's like one of the greatest, yes, thank you. It's one of the greatest uh, comic strips of all time. Um, but it's about this little boy and his pet or not pet tiger. It's his stuffed tiger that he imagines is alive. So Calvin is the boy and he sees this, um, this beanie with a propeller on it that spins. I think it has a battery or maybe he spins it with his hand, um, but he sees it on the back of a cereal box. And it says that if you eat like four boxes of cereal and mail in the proofs of purchase, then you can win this beanie. And he gets so excited. He wants this beanie more than anything. So he eats cereal every meal. He's stuffing himself till he gets sick and he, he's toiling basically. He's killing himself. And then he finally eats enough cereal to get the beanie. He mails it in and then he's waiting and he's dying while he's waiting. It's taking weeks to arrive. This is before Amazon Prime. And then he gets the box and he, uh, opens it up and he gets the beanie and he puts it on it, puts it on his head and he runs outside and he turns on the propeller. And it starts spinning. And the comic strip, he's just standing there outside with a spinning propeller. That's it. And he says, This is odd. And Haas says, What did you think was gonna happen? And he thought, he thought that if he had a beanie with a propeller on his head, that he would be able to fly. Okay, he thought that he was gonna be able to fly. He wasn't just trying to get a fashionable item. He wanted to soar through the air. So he got what he desired technically. But he didn't have the ability to enjoy it because it's so underwhelming. I mean, we see this in the Bible. Do you remember the story of Rachel and Leah and Jacob? It's full of what is underwhelming. Jacob thinks that he's going to marry Rachel. He toils for years so that he can marry her. And then he gets tricked by Laban, their father, and he marries Leah instead. And he wakes up in the morning and it's Leah. And he's shocked. He feels like he was cheated, but that's really in some ways a metaphor for how we all are because Leah, right? Do you remember her? She is the not loved one. She's the unlovely one. She's the one that's compared unfavorably to her sister, right? And then she marries Jacob. She, she is able to secure a husband and then they, she gives uh, him her, uh, gives him some sons, which Rachel can do, which was such a blessing in that culture. And the first time she has a son, she's like, okay, this time, Jacob's really going to see me for who I am. He's going to love me. Second son, oh, this time. Third time, this time. uh, Third son, this time. He's going to love me. He doesn't love her for the sons. And he never will. He will never love her more than Rachel. We have these hopes, we have these dreams, we think that more is going to be better, and it's not. And the preacher says that the greatest evil, or one of the greatest evils in the world that he has seen, a grievous evil, a terrible tragedy, is for people to experience this. To receive these things in life. Things that are good, and yet be unable to enjoy them because they're not good enough. Now it's interesting, the preacher says in verse two, verse two, but a stranger enjoys them. And I think that this is a bit of a autobiography, if it were, as it were. Solomon toiled, right, to build the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom never reached heights higher than when Solomon was king. And yet at the end of it, because of his unfaithfulness to God, God said, I'm going to take the kingdom away and I'm going to give it to a neighbor. I'm going to give it to someone you don't even know. This guy named Jeroboam, this guy who didn't earn it. He wasn't born into the right family. He is going to take 10 of the 12 tribes out of your family. See, Solomon understands that the worst thing, the greatest evil is having what you wanted, getting what you worked for and not being able to enjoy it and seeing that other people somehow can see money stuff. It can all give us joy. You can have it but it won't by itself cure our dissatisfaction with life. Keep reading verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. He says it's better. He's said this before, but he says it even more graphically. It's better to be born dead than to be so wretched as to have everything and be unhappy. Despair is worse than death. Now, again, this is a graphic image. It's even painful for some of us. But this only serves to highlight how how bad Solomon has felt. He feels like my life was a waste. I wasted everything. I fathered hundreds of children to hundreds of wives. I have so much gold that silver is basically worthless to me. I've lived a long life and yet I'm more miserable than ever. Verse 4, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. The advantage of the stillborn child is that it hasn't had to experience the despair and disillusionment of life under the sun. A stillborn child is still a tragedy, don't get me wrong, but Solomon says, do you know what could be even worse is a stillborn soul? A life lived every day in misery, hard-hearted as a diamond. See, if you die, at least there's some rest from the misery of life. And there's that idea again, rest. Now hold that thought, verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Okay, the good and the power to enjoy it, those are two very different things. There is objective good in this world. The word good actually shows up as many times as heaven in the book of Ecclesiastes. The world is fallen, but there are still echoes of Eden reverberating everywhere. So what's the worst thing? It's not dying. That's what he's saying. We're all going to die. We're all going to the grave. The worst thing is to live without truly knowing satisfaction. The worst thing is to live without truly living. The worst thing is to live without being able to recognize and enjoy and to receive the good because there is good. There are two evils under the sun, losing it all to a broken world and gaining it all, but still feeling like you're losing because it means that it's not just the world that is broken. It's not just the world that is fallen and broken. It's actually you and me. It's us. You are restless. You don't have rest. You don't know how to get it. So many of us, we, we think that buying something is going to give us rest, but it won't. You could buy a house, but that doesn't make it a home filled with warmth and love. You understand this, right? You can buy a ring, but that isn't going to give you a good marriage. You could buy all the toys and trinkets and video games for your kids, but that doesn't mean that you're going to have a good relationship with them or be a good father or mother. You have more and more in the bank account, and yet you're just as anxious and stressed as you were before, maybe even more so. Is there a better way? Is there rest? As he does, the preacher takes us to the brink of despair, and then he leads us elsewhere. The third point, three things money can't buy, which brings us back to the game show. You know, it's funny. Michael Larson, he's another one of those rich guy, suddenly become rich tragedy tales. He told the Press Your Luck host that he was an ice cream truck driver. I don't know if he was telling the truth or what, but he said, you know, I drive my ice cream truck and I hope to win enough money so that I don't have to drive my ice cream truck. And they're like, okay, give Michael a round of applause. Let's cheer him on. Let's hope that he wins enough money. Now think about that for a second. It's a throwaway thing, but think about that. Enough money. How much money would be enough? For Michael, as it is with all of us, it's never enough. He had $110,000 afterwards, but that's where he lost his life. Because after he gamed the game show, he thought he could game everything. He, he put all of his earnings into other get-rich-quick schemes, and you can probably guess how this worked out. He didn't win. He took out a lot of money in cash for this one thing he was trying to do. It got stolen from his apartment or house or wherever he lived. He blamed his wife. He got divorced. He he was on the run from debt collectors his whole life. He died when he was 49 years old. 49. You tell me if that was a happy life. I think that you could be happier driving an ice cream truck your whole life than to live like that. Now we're getting to the center row, uh, the center of our sandwich and uh, what's the most important, important part of the sandwich, right? It's the meat, obviously. Now, I realize it's not obvious because some of my friends were arguing about this. Like, what's more important, the bread or the meat? Like, what makes a really good sandwich? Is it the bread or the meat? This could split a church, I realize. Um, now, no one's going to say lettuce or mayo. If you are, maybe you should worship elsewhere. No, I'm just kidding. It's fine. We we welcome all sinners. Um but what I said was, you don't call it a weed sandwich, right? You call it like a turkey sandwich or a pastrami. You know, this is not even part of the sermon. Um, but then I was talking to Eric about this right before this, and he said, yeah, but without bread, it's not a sandwich. And I was like, you're right. So anyway, we're at the meat now. And in Hebrew poetry, at least, if not sandwiches, the center is usually the most important part. Okay, he's been taking us here. He says, the problem is you. And money can't solve that problem. Do you see how it's moving? The problem is in us. We're, we're striving for something. We're restless. We want happiness. We know that we need money. We know that we need stuff in life, but, but it's not satisfying us. What do we do? We're restless. How can we be helped? And he leads us to the center, verses 18 through 20 in chapter 5. Behold what I have seen to be good. Not a grievous evil, but a good I have seen great evils under the sun. But here he says, I have seen what is good and fitting. And the word for fitting there is the same word as beautiful from chapter 3. God has made everything beautiful in its time. I have seen things that are good in this evil world. I have seen things that are beautiful in this world of heaven. There is goodness east of Eden. There are things that money can't buy. And there are three things that he talks about. Pleasure and toil, contentment and vanity, and preoccupying joy. Okay, real quick, pleasure and toil. The word for enjoyment in verse 18 is the word for pleasure. Okay, without the negative connotations. The word for toil is the word for work with all the negative connotations. He says, you can find enjoyment in your toil. This isn't about masochism. This isn't about liking pain. This is about finding the good in the midst of the bad. This is the ability to see the silver lining on every dark cloud. It's to enjoy the simple things, even the difficult things. This is our lot. See if there's one thing that Ecclesiastes has been hammering besides vanity or kind of kind of the overall idea is this is the way the world is. And the sooner we accept it the sooner that we can move on. The world is difficult. We have a few days here on earth of toil and trouble, but piercing through the dark clouds of difficulty that cover the world east of Eden, are enjoyments to find. And the tone isn't, oh, well, might as well make the best of it. This is a beautiful thing. It's like what I talked about a couple of weeks ago, Rosebud, Charles Foster Kane toiled his whole life only to find he was happiest when he had nothing but a little sled in the snow as a kid. This is approaching life with the eyes of faith. God said that there is goodness to be found even in this life of hell and evil. So I'm going to look with expectation. It's eating and drinking. That's what he says here in the text. It's the simple pleasures. It's stopping to think in the moment and be amazed that food tastes so good. It's the first sip of coffee in the morning. It's the pizza party at work. It's appreciating that some of your coworkers are actually pretty good to work with. It's being thankful that you have a job at all. It's stopping when your child smiles at you or hugs you or or wants to show you a drawing and being thankful for that, even though they're crying 23 hours a day. See, money can't buy these things. Ecclesiastes isn't pretending that life is all rainbows and butterflies. It's not, but it's saying that if you look, you can see them. You have to find it. Money can't buy it. Second, contentment and vanity. The world is vanity. Okay, there's no turn here where we say, actually, it's a happy world after all. There is so much vanity in this world. Death is real. Suffering is real. We can't stop time. We can't slow down the train ride of our lives. But that doesn't mean that we can't be content right now. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Can you accept your lot? Because what you have right now is your lot. And it's a gift. We're so preoccupied. We're we're always thinking we're obsessed with we're hungering after the things that we don't have. I wish I had that. I wish I had this And we don't stop to recognize the gift of our lives right now. It doesn't mean settle. It doesn't mean don't have goals. It doesn't mean you can't want other things. What it means is to be okay and even grateful with your life at this very second. You know, 1st Timothy 6, before Paul said that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, he said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. There's no gain under the sun, but there is one thing, godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have fat, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. What did Jesus say? Your heavenly father already knows what you need. And truth be told, all of us, if we're alive, we do have what we need. Contentment comes from fixing our eyes, not on what we want, but on what we have. And lastly, preoccupying joy, verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. See, the preacher, he's been looking around at all these different things. He's been driving himself himself to the brink of despair, thinking about how this doesn't matter, this won't last, et cetera, et cetera. But for the person whom God has given joy in his heart, he won't even be thinking about his life in that way. He won't be thinking about the past and his regrets or the future and its anxieties. Why? Because his overriding preoccupation is joy in everything. There's a joy that can radiate from the inside. Some people have this. Some people have nothing and yet they feel like they possess everything. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. She's been paralyzed most of her life and she has so much joy, a lot more than I do most of the time. This a joy that is possible no matter what the circumstances are because this joy doesn't come from this world under the sun. It comes from above it. It comes from beyond it, actually. In Galatians, Paul calls it a fruit of the very spirit of God. And this is the key. We're looking for money to give us the things that only God can give. We're looking for money to give us ultimate security. We're looking for money to give us uh, an overwhelming joy. We're looking for money to give us better relationships and a new heart. It won't happen ever. The only way you can have these things is all throughout the center of the sandwich. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. God can give it. It's grace, wealth, possessions, money, and the power of to enjoy them. It's all the gift of God. It's all grace. It's all what we don't deserve. Some of us sing of grace, but truth be told, we don't really like grace that much. We don't like to be the recipients of anyone's handouts. We like to pull our own weight. And that's not a bad thing totally, but when it comes to the power to enjoy, when it comes to living wisely, when it comes from internalizing what Ecclesiastes is really about, You have to understand when it comes to our lives under the sun, we don't deserve any enjoyment at all. Adam and Eve were created, placed in the garden, given a world to discover and cultivate. They had each other. They had everything. They were content until temptation slithered in. And this is how vulnerable contentment is. Even in paradise, without sin, contentment was still able to be attacked by Satan. Even Adam. They had joy, but they wanted more. They took the forbidden fruit. They turned away from God in their sin and ended up cutting themselves and the rest of the human race, us, off from eternal life, from the presence of God, from Eden, from joy, from all the things that we crave in this life. They forfeited everything because they wanted what they didn't have. And we're not so different. We too have forfeited God's presence, eternal life, Eden itself with our sin. All because our hearts love other things more than God. And we act like joy doesn't matter. Joy absolutely does matter. Because joy is what happens when we are content in God. We love so many different things. We're chasing so many different things. It's just the wind. This is Adam and Eve's story. This is our story. But the story doesn't end there because after this, the grace of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. He had everything. Everything, everything in the world, in heaven and on earth, but he gave it up to be born in the likeness of a servant. Everything he had, every possession, every disciple was worse than he deserved. But he, with the joy set before him, went to the cross and endured the worst death ever to exist, where he not only was crucified, but he drank the cup of God's wrath dry. Why? So we could have eternal life. So we could have the promise of a better home than Eden, heaven itself, So that we could have God. And it's not just about, okay, now I don't have to go to hell when I die. This is about receiving everything back. This is about what Ecclesiastes is talking about. This is about the power to enjoy. So if you're struggling with life, if you're feeling discontent, if you're killing yourself, wanting to get more, turn around, stop before it's too late, recognize it's a dead end and turn upward. Look heavenward. Only God can give you the salvation and the life and the satisfaction that you need. We'll close here. Close with Mark 10. Mark chapter 10 on this note. Verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. Dwell on that question. What do you want me to do for you? Imagine if Jesus gave him a million dollars. Would that have satisfied the cry of his heart? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So much of Ecclesiastes is about seeing seeing the world, seeing ourselves, seeing the vanity, seeing the evil. But we're blinded so often, sometimes willingly so. We don't want to look at the world. We want to pretend that this world is nicer than it is. We want to pretend that money will satisfy us if only we get a little bit more or if we get a new job or if we get a new spouse, whatever it might be. No, what we need is sight. What we need is sight. What we need is to ask. We need God to help us to see, to have mercy on us so that we can see, one, how bad things are so that we can see the only one who can give us the power to enjoy things, God himself. So that we can see the goodness that is actually still all around us. So that we, like all disciples of Christ, like Paul said, we could be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We can have nothing, yet we can possess everything. We can be dying as we all are and yet truly live. See, maybe you're wondering in Ecclesiastes, okay, there's all these dead ends. I'm not feeling that much happier. I know theoretically it should be possible. Have you tried this? Have you tried getting on your knees and asking? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Help me to be content and godly. Give me the power to enjoy what I have so that I don't waste this gift that I call my life. If you're struggling, just ask and know that when you ask, you'll receive. Father, we come before you this afternoon, and I pray, God, that you would help us to get out of the cycle of thinking that just a little bit more will make us happier. God, I pray also for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, God, who have known you, who have tried to live for you, but still struggle with joy and contentment. God, I pray that you would help us to see that joy and contentment are what you give. Joy and contentment are not things that are optional, God. They're things that are found when the spirit of God dwells in our hearts. And maybe, God, we've been trying to do religion. Maybe we've been trying to do the right thing, but we haven't really been seeking you. God, I pray that you would forgive us of that and that you would draw us to yourself. God, we know that you are gracious and merciful. We deserve far worse than what we have, but you've given us so much. For that, we thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.